2006, November 27th. Today is Lecture 42, Asteroids and Meteorites, which will begin in just a moment. Let's turn on the recorder and get going. So today is Lecture 42 on Asteroids and Meteorites. We've basically gone through the major constituents of the solar system, the planets, the giant moons, the dwarf planets, most of the dwarf planets at least. We haven't really talked much about the small bodies of the solar system. So the first part of this week, we'll be wrapping up the class, if you will, at least the sections on the solar system, by talking about the small objects of the solar system. And again, we're going to take the sort of inside-out approach and talk first about asteroids and meteorites, the rocky small bodies of the solar system. The key ideas today are to introduce the asteroids. These are the small bodies of the inner solar system, by inner solar system meaning closer to the sun than the orbit of Jupiter. Most of these asteroids are found, not surprisingly, in the asteroid belt, sometimes referred to as the main belt, which lies between Mars and Jupiter. The orbits there in this region are very strongly influenced by the gravity of Jupiter, as we'll see. In fact, orbital resonances play a strong role in the overall dynamical structure of the main belt. And we'll look a little bit at the composition of the asteroids. We've only sent a few spacecraft by asteroids at this point, only two Two asteroids have actually been landed upon by, by spacecraft very briefly. And so we know a little bit about their composition. They're made mostly of rock and metal or some mixture of the two. It's a combination of undifferentiated stuff and actually stuff that looks like it was once in a differentiated body. This brings us down to the fact that we know a little bit more about the surface of asteroids, not from asteroids themselves, but from pieces of asteroids that have fallen to Earth, the meteorites. Meteoroids. These are basically bits of rock and metal that orbit the sun, and every now and then the Earth runs into one of these things. It burns up in the atmosphere, making a spectacular meteor, and sometimes that chunk is big enough to actually survive and make its way to the ground and can be collected as something called a meteorite. So there's a little bit of language here. We'll talk about the composition of the meteorites, and actually towards the end of class, I brought in a large iron meteorite that the department owns here, just to give you an idea of what one of these wonderful things looks like. Well. If you look out at the solar system, the four inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, all lie between about 0.4 and 1.5 astronomical units from the sun. And then to get to the next planet, Jupiter, you've got to suddenly make a jump all the way out to 5.2 astronomical units. And then from there, it's 10 and, and so on in progression outwards to the solar system. But there's an apparent gap in the progression of planets between Mars and Jupiter. And this gap got kind of noticed. There are various games that people played, and we'll talk more about this in, in Thursday's lecture, that noticed there was, a, there was sort of a numerical progression of the planets. There was no physics behind it, but they just sort of noticed it and thought, you know, it's really like there's a planet missing kind of around two or three astronomical units. So searches started up in earnest in the late 1700s to actually try to see if there was, in fact, a very tiny planet somewhere hiding in this gap between Mars and Jupiter. And the answer was found not by these systematic searches, but actually serendipitously by accident by a monk of the Theatine order by the name of Giuseppe Piazzi, who was working in Sicily. He was setting up a brand new observatory in Palermo, and he was busily measuring the positions of stars, because Palermo Observatory was the southernmost observatory in Europe at the time. And so in 1800, he was mapping out the stars to produce a southern star map. And he noticed this one star kind of moved from night to night. And he followed it. He discovered it on, in fact, January 1st of 1801, followed it until it vanished behind the sun in mid-February, and realized that he didn't see a comet or something else. He was actually seeing what he thought was, in fact, a new planet. The name was given to it. It was named Ceres. It was 2.8 astronomical units from the sun, which places it right smack between 
Mars and Jupiter in sequence outward from the sun. And it was too small, however, to be a planet. It's about 914 kilometers in diameter, and in fact, it's not even perfectly spherical, as near as we can tell from modern observations. But people thought it was a planet for a long time. I'll leave that story to elaborate for another day. But what's important is, by the year 1872, just about the time when photography began to be employed in the, in the searches for objects in the solar system, more than 100 much smaller objects were found in this same general vicinity in the space between Mars and Jupiter. And all of a sudden, the first four asteroids, which people for a while thought were first four small planets, turned out to be but the very largest members of a general class of what grew not from hundreds, now to many thousands of bodies. And we now call them, in a name suggested by the astronomer William Herschel, the asteroids. By this year, by 2006, telescopic surveys can combine not so much with photography anymore now, but sensitive digital cameras has actually made fairly large survey of census of the inner portion of the solar system. More than 30,000 asteroids are now known with not only orbits, but also many of them have names assigned to them. And there are more than 60,000 more this number could actually be upwards now of almost 100,000, it's growing every year almost exponentially, with insufficient orbital data. So we don't know exactly what their orbits are yet, but subsequent observations should close the arc on the orbit. And once they do that, we can then name them and, and assign them their place in the, in the sky. Now, when you know an asteroid's orbit, the, rule, the way the rule works, if you determine an asteroid's orbit, you're the person who's allowed to name it. And a lot of the names that have been assigned are fairly imaginative. So we'll talk a little bit about that here in just a second. Now, 90% of the asteroids that have been found aren't just found in anywhere in the inner solar system. They're found primarily in a place called the main belt. The main belt lies between about 2.1 and 3.2 astronomical units, right smack in the middle of that space between Mars and Jupiter. And it turns out that this inner and outer radius are fairly well defined, and is defined, as it turns out, by the 4 to 1 and 2 to 1 orbital resonances with Jupiter. So asteroids that are in the inner part of the main belt at 2.1 astronomical units complete four orbits for every one orbit of Jupiter. And asteroids that are at the outer edge at about 3.2 complete two orbits around the sun for every orbit around Jupiter. This means they know something about Jupiter's orbit. They're actually gravitationally interacting with Jupiter, and that's what defines the main belt. Now, the orbits themselves are not confined to the ecliptic plane. In fact, that's true of both Ceres and Pallas, the first couple of asteroids observed. One of the properties that got their attention was they didn't lie in the ecliptic plane like the other planets at the time, but were tilted. Most of these can be tilted anywhere from 0 to 15 degrees in either direction, and a few can even get as high as 30 degrees tilted up out of the plane. So you can think of the asteroid main belt as kind of a fat band of asteroids vertically. Some of the orbits can actually get fairly eccentric. The eccentricity can get up around 0.15. Again, for the most of the solar system, for most of the main planets, the eccentricities are all lower than a tenth. The most eccentric planets, for example, are Mercury. Those things are still have eccentricities under a tenth, and these things are up to 0.15. The average distance between asteroids and the asteroid belt for a typical asteroid, a typical asteroid has a size of about a kilometer across, is about 5 million kilometers. Okay? So the view of asteroid belt that people have, and it was sort of the cartoon view for a long time, is of this massive field of spinning rocks. Uh, George Lucas has this thing for asteroid belts. You know, at least 
two of the six Star Wars movies, there's a spectacular CGI done chase through asteroid fields. Asteroid belts don't look like that. Asteroid belts are actually pretty empty. Here's a plot. This is actually a plot made as of November 20th. No. Showing the inner solar system, so the outer circle here is the orbit of Jupiter, and there's the position of Jupiter on, on, September 20th, on November 20th. The Sun, Mercury, Venus, the Earth is over here, Mars. And this green fuzz of dots represents the orbits, the current positions of the asteroids in the main belt. The red points here are all of the asteroids which are scattered into the inner solar system. There's various names for these different families of asteroids that are distinguished by their orbits, whether they cross the orbit of Mars, there's a few that cross the orbit of the Earth. Of course, there's a limitation on this plot, right? You, you've got to plot at least a pixel in size, and the computer program that plots this at the Minor Planet Center at Harvard makes the plots really big. I mean, let's face it. The Earth is not that big compared to one astronomical unit. The Earth would be very, barely visible as a pixel on this scale. So they've exaggerated the sizes of everything. And so it looks like the Earth is kind of, it kind of looks like a person trying to walk through a crowd at a football game. Here, in fact, a crowd for a football game in a day where everyone's wearing red and that poor person's wearing blue. Um, but it looks like you can't possibly send a spacecraft out through this main belt. You look at that and you think, wow, there's just this barrier you're going to run into stuff. To give you some idea of scale, I've got a little model of an uh, asteroid here, a nice uh, potato chosen from the uh, giant eagle this morning. Um, I had to dig through to try to find a slightly pitted, grungy-looking uh, potato, because asteroids are, in general, this is not a bad picture of an asteroid. It's kind of elongated, irregular, um, kind of pitted here and there. It's covered with kind of brown gick. Um, actually, it's brown rock and dust. Let's say that this uh, potato here was an asteroid. Instead of being 14-centimeter potato, it's a one-kilometer asteroid. That's, if I had to pick a size, that's a pretty typical size. Where would the next one-kilometer size asteroid scale down to this be? Where would I have to go? For example, how many of you think I'd have to go to the back of the room? How many of you think I might have to walk out on the oval? How many have some opinion as to where I got to go? Not where you want me to go, but where I should go with the asteroid. Where should the other spud be? Any guesses? Computations? Well, I'll give you the answer since you're all waiting for it anyway. I would have to go down to Port Columbus, get on an airplane, and fly to Philadelphia. I'd have to basically go 700 kilometers away to find the next 14-centimeter size asteroid spud. That's how thin the asteroid belt actually is. You can navigate spacecraft through it. You can pass through it without having to see stuff. So pictures like this are illustrative of where things are, but they're not illustrative of the density of the asteroid belt. It's actually relatively low, all told. Well, as I said, if you know the, the, um, the, the orbit of an asteroid, you can give it a name. This tradition goes back to the very beginning. The very first asteroid was called Ceres. The second one, discovered a year later in 1802, was named Pallas. And then it kind of started working their way up through various members of Greek and Roman mythology. And, you know, after a while, you just run out of names. And so um, various names began to come in. For example, 243 Ida. Ida actually is a member, but then there's Matilda, Eros, so things are not exactly in order. Gaspra, these are starting to get into place names here. Um, more modern uh, naming conventions have come in. For example, asteroid number 1814, 1815, and 1818 have been named Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. So we can actually start naming them after people. You can even name them after living people after a while. They have, the names have to be clean. They have to be non-political. 
So there's various other names. For example, up in the 4,000s, between 4147 and 4150, we have Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Starr. Some of you may be old enough to know the Beatles. It's some rock band. I never heard of them before. Uh, 2620 is named for Carlos Santana. 4305 for Eric Clapton. 3834 for Frank Zappa. Oh, they slipped in the name Zappa Frank just so you didn't forget who it was named for. And 4442 is, in fact, named for Jerry Garcia, the late guitarist for The Grateful Dead. This probably is dating me terribly, given who I've picked for out of the list here, but there are a number of modern ones. In fact, there's a whole page down at the Minor Planet Center you can find if you dig around the rock and roll uh, asteroid names. They're named after cities. They're named after astronomers. If you find it yourself and you actually are the person to chart the orbit, you can suggest a name to the International Astronomical Union. There are now tens of thousands of named asteroids. Let's get back sort of to the more interesting bits, where the asteroids are. We noticed, for example, that the asteroids do not land anywhere in the solar system. They're confined primarily, about 90% of them are within what's called the main belt. And that main belt is confined between the 2 to 1 and 4 to 1 resonances with Jupiter. But it's not a completely filled belt. Now that picture I showed, which showed the current where they are today picture, is somewhat deceptive looking, because it looks like it's completely filled in dynamically in space. But in fact, if I make a plot, a histogram, of where the semi-major axes of these are, I find there's gaps. There are certain orbits that simply are not occupied by asteroids. And they don't land just anywhere. They land specifically at the 3 to 1, 5 to 2, and 7 to 3 orbital resonances with Jupiter. So for example, a family of asteroids in a 7 to 3 resonance, the asteroid is closer to the Sun than Jupiter, so it will complete more orbits in the time it takes Jupiter to complete one. So the way you would read this is an asteroid in the 7 to 3 resonance would complete seven orbits in the time it takes Jupiter to complete three. Notice we've stepped into an interesting place of resonances. We've already seen one-to-one resonances. We've seen two-to-one resonances in the giant moons of Jupiter and also in some of the moons of, of Saturn and the rings. We've seen the three-to-two resonance in the outer solar system. For example, Pluto is in a three-to-two resonance. These are examples now of other odd whole number combinations. And these are exact whole number combinations. These gaps are known as the Kirkwood gaps for an astronomer named Kirkwood who first discovered that there were just some asteroids that just weren't going into certain orbits. Now these gaps are examples of what are known as clearing resonances. Basically the objects that are in there get a rhythmic push. Either every seven times they go around they get tweaked by Jupiter, every five times they go around they get tweaked twice and so forth. So they get a resonant push and that push actually clears them out of the way, much in the same way that some resonances clear gaps in the, in the rings of Saturn. But it's also possible to confine asteroids into resonances. You sweep them up and you trap them into resonances. For example, there are whole families of, of asteroids that are found to share the same resonant orbits. For example, the Hildas are trapped in a 3 to 2 resonance with Jupiter. The Floras are trapped in a 7 to 2 resonance. And there's a whole class of asteroids called the Trojans that are in a 1 to 1 resonance with Jupiter. That means they actually share the arc of Jupiter's orbit but they are kept away from Jupiter by either orbiting ahead or behind, so they never run into the planet. Now, these resonances and the fact that the belt is very clearly defined by resonances, whenever you see that kind of either clearing or confining resonances anywhere within the solar system, that is evidence of dynamical evolution of the system. That means the planets, in this case Jupiter, has not always been in the orbit it's in now forever and ever. 
In fact, Jupiter has, over the course of the history of the solar system, slowly moved closer to the sun. It does so because every now and then Jupiter's gravity has a close encounter with an asteroid or a rock or a comet, and it gives it orbital energy and slings that rock, scatters it out of the solar system. Well, if it does that, that means it's transferred some of its orbital energy through gravitational torques into that object. It must give up, it's lost some energy. As it loses energy, it moves one step closer to the sun. Early in the solar system, when the solar system was still filled with leftover debris, was the time of maximum scattering by Jupiter. It was flicking stuff around left and right. Sometimes it would throw stuff out. Sometimes it would throw stuff in. This was that epoch of heavy bombardment that we've talked about before during the first billion years of the solar system's existence. So during that first billion years, Jupiter interacting not only with the asteroids, but also with residual gas and stuff like that from the solar nebula, would have slowly migrated in. It probably was born a little further out and has slowly moved in a bit to where now it's at 5.2 astronomical units. Now it's not going to move very much today because most of the debris has been cleared. So there really aren't as many opportunities. There's not as much mass available for it to sling out and give up energy. But that process of moving in sweeps objects, objects in the asteroid region, feel the gravity of Jupiter and are swept into these resonances, if they're confining resonances like the 3 to 2 and 7 to 2, or they're cleared from some of these funny odd number resonances like the 3 to 1, 5 to 2, and 7 to 3 resonances, which clear gaps. And then the whole asteroid belt itself is locked in these resonances and it moves in with Jupiter. So the presence of very strong gravitational sculpting, dynamical sculpting of these orbits, is a sign of this early dynamical evolution. So here's now this plot. Here's sort of an illustration of what I've just said, where I've now made a histogram of the number of asteroids with known orbits for which we know the semi-major axis. So the height of each bump on the curve is kind of like a grade curve. How many asteroids have that semi-major axis? The first thing, this is actually a, a plot made as of November 9th, this plot's always being added to, is the first thing you see is that most of the asteroids lie in a fairly confined zone between the 4 to 1 and the 2 to 1 resonance. Jupiter is here at 5.2 astronomical units. Mars is down here at about 1.55 astronomical units. The Earth is here at 1 astronomical unit. So you can see this tiny smattering of points that are Earth crossing, Mars crossing. They're all part of this plot but they just sort of fill the space. They're not, they don't have any resonant gaps or anything like that in them. And then there are these outstanding peaks and there's outstanding dips. The deep dips occur at the 3 to 1, 5 to 2, and 7 to 3 resonances. So you can see this one peak here is actually confined between the 2 to 1 and the 7 to 3 resonance, whereas this middle peak is kind of confined between the 5 to 2 and 3 to 1 resonance, thereby giving the impression of a gap. And this outer peak is between the 4 to 1 and 3 to 1 resonance. These gaps are the so-called Kirkwood gaps. You can either view them as, a, as an actual gap or as a confining point for three main belts worth of asteroids. There's actually a smaller group down in here that makes this gap between the 5 to 2 and 7 to 3 a fairly dramatic gap. The other thing you notice is there's another series of little bumps in here. These are, for example, the Hildas, the Trojans, and the Floras 
formed these three groups. I forget, I, I didn't actually find there's a name for this particular group here at 3.4 AUs, but I've forgotten it. So these asteroids are all named for the first asteroid found in that orbit was Flora. First asteroid in this group was Hilda. And this group was actually found as a group of Trojans. And these are actually a special type of orbit. These are orbits that actually share the orbital arc of Jupiter, but move ahead of, lead it, and trail it in the orbit. Here's a picture now of the asteroids as of November 20th. Again, here's Jupiter. It's a little hard to make out. I'm going to tell this light here just for a second to up the contrast. Fortunately, the Minor Planet Center did a number on us here. You can see there's a cloud of blue points. Of course, this is the solar system, so everything orbits in a counterclockwise fashion is plotted here. Here's Jupiter. Out ahead of Jupiter is this cloud of asteroids along the arc. Of course, they're scattered a bit. Some of the orbits are elliptical, so they're either out a little bit or in a little bit compared to that. They kind of lie along a banana-shaped region here. These are the so-called leading Trojans. And this group here, a similar banana-shaped region, are the trailing Trojans. They're all the little tiny blue dots. These are not accidental positions. If I draw the Sun-Jupiter line and then draw the line out to the center of each of these clouds of points, I get exactly a 60-degree angle. So these form exactly an equidistant position. An asteroid at this exact center position is as far from Jupiter as both are from the Sun. And so I actually make an equilateral triangle, 60 degrees for each of the interior angles between Jupiter and the center of the trailing and leading Trojan points. These actually are special locations dynamically. These are often referred to as Lagrange points. They're places where you've solved a three-body gravitational problem. In this case, the gravity of the Sun, Jupiter, and a little tiny asteroid. If you solve those equations, you find that there are five stable positions where the orbits actually don't get scattered. The two that matter to us are the leading and trailing Trojan orbits. Jupiter has Trojans because it's moved in and it's swept objects into the Trojan positions. Saturn and Uranus do not have Trojans because they didn't get involved in that kind of dynamical evolution. But Neptune has slowly moved outwards during the course of its orbital evolution. And in fact, in recent years, four Neptune Trojans have in fact been discovered and more are going to be sought over the next few years. So the existence of Trojan asteroids is, again, more evidence that there was past dynamical evolution of the orbit of Jupiter. It's moved and swept objects into these confining resonances. And of course, just to show you that space around us isn't exactly clear of stuff, but the, the density of stuff has dropped dramatically. These red points here show various types of Earth-crossing asteroids. This fills in kind of this small group of objects in here. These are the objects which are getting a great deal of interest in why people are scanning the skies with electronic cameras, because very likely one of these objects, or one that we haven't actually found yet, probably has our name on it, because these are, in fact, are the population of objects that could likely hit the Earth. And if any of these things hit the Earth on kilometer or 10 kilometer size, we're talking about sort of, you know, worldwide catastrophe kinds of things. So it would be a very good to sort of find out where they are, find the one with our name on it, and because things kind of work fairly slowly, if we find it at the right time, maybe have time to do something about it. We're not sure what we can do about it, nudge it with a nuke or something, but you know, figure out how we're going to deal with the fact that one of these days something's going to hit us, because things have hit us in the past. So I'll say something now about the sizes of asteroids. We've studied a few of them close up from spacecraft and from Hubble. We know their sizes. The very largest of these is Ceres. Not surprisingly, the first asteroid found is the biggest and the brightest. 
It's about 914 kilometers across. Here's a beautiful color, recent color picture taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. The mass of this thing, however, is tiny. It's 0.0002, two ten thousandths of the mass of the Earth. And in fact, recently Ceres is found to be the prototype of the rocky dwarf planets. There are a couple of others which may be big enough. It's called a dwarf planet because it's big enough for gravity to have given it its shape. Even if it's not perfectly spherical, it's at least spheroidal. Most asteroids, however, are much smaller than Ceres. Okay? Only about 100 of the asteroids known are bigger than 140 kilometers across, and we know all of them in the inner solar system. Objects of up to that size would be easily visible in, in sky surveys. The estimate right now is that there are somewhere around 1.2 million asteroids with sizes above a kilometer, both within the main belt and some of the outlying scattered regions. If I took all the main belt asteroids and wadded them all up into a single ball, I would only get 0.0006, 6 of the mass of the Earth. Notice that that number is only three times larger than the mass of Ceres all by itself. In fact, half of this mass, half of this 0.0006 m Earth, is actually contained in four big asteroids. The other half is spread across something on the order of five or six million asteroids down to kind of boulder size. So there really is a tremendous contrast in size between the biggest things and the smallest things. And down here, Ceres is about as big as they get. And that's why Ceres kind of stands out by itself as a dwarf planet. And the rest are kind of just asteroids. If I added up all this material, six ten thousandths, the mass of the Earth, that's only 5% the mass of the Moon. Now, there's an old idea, which had been running around for a long time, that why there were asteroids was that there was an exploded planet that some kind of small terrestrial planet was out there and either it blew up, which doesn't make any physical sense, or perhaps more precisely, the gravity of Jupiter kept the planetesimals so stirred up in that region it never got a chance to form. And that's a more likely thing to happen because the way the planetesimals go is they all start out in little circular orbits and they move around together and they kind of slowly bump and grind into each other and stick and accumulate into big objects. That's how the Earth and Mars and Venus and Mercury formed. But with Jupiter out there, Jupiter is constantly scattering and tugging on those things, especially as Jupiter is doing its slow migration inwards. What that does is take things that are in circular orbits and scatter them first into elliptical orbits. Elliptical orbits mean now instead of slow collisions, you get rapid crossing collisions. Those collisions can be so violent that when the two rocks hit, they don't stick, they break apart into smaller pieces. And so by having Jupiter stirring it up, the collisions become so violent in this region that a large body can actually not accumulate. It, it basically will start to grow. The minute you grow really big, you suddenly become a really big target for a rock to hit. And if that rock is big enough, the collision actually busts both you and the other rock apart. So it sets a limit on a growth. So objects like Ceres are expected to be very, fairly rare. There's one of them. The next size down from 900 is 550, kilo 550 kilometers. And then you only got four that contain half the mass. The rest are a bunch of busted up little pieces. And those busted up little pieces remained as the asteroids. Some got tossed into the inner solar system. Some got scattered out while Jupiter was migrating. And over time, the asteroid belt was depleted of planetesimals until there was only 0.0006 m sun, m Earth, excuse me, worth of material. So the small mass in here 
You don't have enough for an exploded planet, so that kind of ruins about a dozen or so science fiction stories. And even if you could collect the material, Jupiter's kept it all stirred up, you never could form it into even a small moon. So you only get kind of a small rocky moon, rocky body kind of thing out of this. And again, to keep it in perspective, remember that Ceres all by itself contains about one-third the mass of the main belt. So that's about how big of a thing you could make. You could make basically you can make three Ceres, and that's it. And again, just to put things on scale, here's the moon, Ceres, and Vesta. These are the only two of the four large asteroids that have actually been photographed. Both of these images are taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. Ceres and Vesta are actually the subject of a spacecraft called Dawn, which hopefully will be um, getting an encounter of these in the next few years and actually give us close-up views of its surface. Vesta here is probably right on the line between a dwarf planet and not. It's still up, to, up for grabs, whether it gets its shape from gravity or it's just sort of, you know, a kind of a round, flattened spud worth of, worth of rock. Most of the asteroids, however, are not roundish like Ceres or Vesta. They actually are going to be very irregular shape. As I said, they're kind of like cosmic potatoes made of rock. Um, they're much too small for gravity to shape them into a spherical shape. Their body forms are basically dictated by rigid body forces of rock upon rock. The gravity is not strong enough to overcome those rigid body forces and shape the object. It also means that those, those forces are not big enough to melt the interior and differentiate the bodies. So if I have a very old sort of planetesimal, leftover planetesimal type asteroid, I expect it to be undifferentiated. Whereas an object like Ceres, which even Ceres is only semi-round, it's not a sphere, Ceres probably is differentiated inside. Now as they orbit, of course, they're going to rotate. They kind of tumble end over end sometimes, or they have complex rotations. Most of these things have rotation periods of about nine hours. That's not all that different than the typical rotation periods we saw in the outer solar system for Jupiter and the others. Earth, has, Earth and Mars have long periods of rotation, but Mars and, and, and the Earth have moons, and they tidally interact with those moons and have slowed down the Earth over time. The Earth was probably rotating at about 12 hours when it was born, but the moon's tidal interactions have slowed it down over his, his, his cosmic history. But the asteroids, many of them, still remember the sort of general rotation rate of the outside. However, the range is huge. Some of these things rotate in three hours or less. Others are so slowly rotating, they take a few weeks to make one complete tumble end over end. This wide range of rotation speeds reflects a wide range of collision histories. Let's face it, this thing is kind of oblong, so any collision that this thing occurs, and you can see from its cratered surface on this picture of this particular asteroid here, um, I forget which one, this is asteroid Gaspra, you can see a fairly large impact crater down here. Here, these are off-center strikes. If you hit something off-center, you're going to set it into a tumble. If it happens to be struck in the direction it's moving, the strike will actually slow it down. And so the fact that you sort of have a lever arm to work with here is what gives you a very wide range. It tells us that collisions are very important in determining the history of the surfaces of these objects. Now, the compositions of the asteroids, we know a little bit about the composition, basically from meteorites that we've been able to find with orbits that get out to where these families of asteroids are. We've done spectroscopy of the, of the asteroids to be able to tell us what the solar reflection spectrum looks like. That tells us what minerals are present. You can do remote sensing tricks 
The same as you use when you do remote sensing assays of flying aircraft with special remote sensing cameras over the Earth to look at soil and, and mineral types on the Earth. It's exactly the same principles. And we've also flown past them. We can look at general colors. We can look at general structure. Are they dark? Are they light? And from that, we can piece together what their, what their composition is. There are three basic classifications that we can, we can dump them into. The C type, where C stands for carbonaceous. These are very, very dark in color. They're composed mostly of carbonaceous, meaning carbon-bearing compounds. And these comprise about 75% of the asteroids. This asteroid up here, um, Matilda, actually is an example of a C-type asteroid. These asteroids formed far out in the solar system, between three, four, two, three, four astronomical units, out in the region where carbon compounds began to condense out of the solar nebula. The Earth and Mars are too close, the carbon still stays in the gas phase. So we expect to find more carbon-bearing material because they're out in the places where carbon can begin to condense. The S-type, which form about 16%, S stands for silicaceous or silicates, silicate-bearing. The silicate bearing actually will get a sort of reddish in color. Here's an example down here of Gaspara. Or is that Ida? I can't remember. Anyway, whatever this asteroid is down here, I've forgotten its name off, off the top of my head here. It's got a slightly reddish brown color. That's telling you you're dealing with mostly silicates, either iron or maybe even stony iron. And they represent about 16% of all the asteroids. And finally, there's the M type, M for metallic actually have a slightly bluer color to them, and they're probably going to be very, very iron-rich objects. Now, the fact that I've got stony, silicate-rich, and iron-rich objects tells us something important. It tells us that the parent body of these asteroids, which comprise, oh, I'd have to do the math here, 9% roughly and 16% together, 25% of the asteroids, that means they may have at one time been part of a larger body that was big enough to have differentiated into an iron metal core and a soft silicate outside, but that a large impact probably disrupted that object. And so when it disrupted it, the silicaceous mantle would have been the parent body of the stony asteroids, and the metallic iron nickel core would have become the parent body of the S-type asteroids, the mostly iron-rich asteroids. I would not expect, if I had a raw asteroid, a raw leftover undifferentiated planetesimal, I should have an even mix of silicates and iron. There also are going to be stony irons, which are going to come from only partially still mixed up objects. So we're going to expect, if we did a, a detailed geologic assay of the asteroid belt, we can do this through meteorites, I expect a mix of things. If I see very strong contrasts, mostly silicates, mostly iron, I can guess that that came from a large, original, differentiated parent body. But if I see kind of a general amalgam admixture of stone and iron, then that probably came from an undifferentiated parent. So one of the goals in doing this, especially if you can find something with carbon in it, carbonaceous means it was condensed out of the original cold junk. It never got hot enough to re-volatilize and re-vaporize that carbon stuff. So the carbonaceous asteroids may represent original planetesimal-type materials. It hasn't gotten hot enough to have destroyed the carbon compounds. So different types of meteors and different type asteroids and different types of meteors from these families are giving us snapshots of the different stages of formation of material in the original solar nebula three and a half to four billion years ago. So that's why we care about this. It actually gives us a snapshot into some of our ideas of how the solar system formed. 
Now, the big question remaining, which we don't know a good answer to, is are the asteroids all of a piece? Are they monolithic, literally meaning one rock? Or are they rubble piles? Are they just sort of amalgams, like big piles of gravel held together by mutual gravity? Some of the asteroids that we see are very clearly solid. We've sent spacecraft by them, or even some asteroids have little moons, they, or pairs of asteroids orbit around each other. Whenever you see an orbit, you can measure a mass. If you, to see an object all by itself, you have no way of guessing its mass other than educated guesses about its composition. But if you get an orbit, you can measure its mass directly from Newtonian gravity. So for those where we've actually been able to measure a mass, and that really comes down to about 16 asteroids at this point. It really is a small number out of the thousands we know. Some of them have densities up around 3 to 5 grams per cc. Well, that immediately tells you that that's exactly like solid rock and metals here on Earth. Those things are very clearly solid objects. They don't have any cavities in them or anything like that. They also have very, very dust, crater, heavily cratered surfaces. They're very ancient surfaces. And they're often covered with a dusty regolith of pulverized rock and material from being constantly sanded by micrometeorites over history. Others, on the other hand, look like what we call generically rubble piles. They tend to have much lower density, between 1 and 2 grams per cc. They appear to be loose aggregates of rock that are held together by their mutual gravity. They aren't a solid, melted piece that cooled into a piece. They actually collected. They may have been disrupted by an impact, and then the pieces kind of all kind of just floated back together and kind of stuck together, but they didn't molt and fuse back together necessarily. And so these actually are fairly loose assemblies. And again, the idea is they may have originally been solid, but they were shattered by impacts. Why do we care about this? Well, one is we want to know how many asteroids have been shattered by impacts, because that gives us some idea of how intense those impacts were. Was it just a little bit of a surface peppering that sanded the surfaces and cratered them, but nonetheless left them get whole? Or were the collisions so, so violent that most of them got busted in the rubble piles? So that kind of answers something about what the history of collisions was like during formation. A more practical question, especially for the Earth-crossing asteroids are, if an asteroid that's got our number on it is heading to collide with Earth and we want to do something about it. Well, if it's a solid rock, all I have to do is push it. I could you know, light off a nuke, clamp a big rocket engine to it, something. There's various schemes for doing this. You can push on a rock. You don't want to push on a rock pile. It's really hard to push on a rock pile. If you light a nuke off next to a rock pile and you do it wrong, you don't have, now not have one big rock coming at you. You have lots and lots of little rocks coming at you, and that's a whole lot harder to stop. So the strategies for getting around an Earth bearing on, in on asteroid will depend upon whether we can tell whether it's a rubble pile or a solid object. So that's a future problem, I hope, for a very much future day. But nonetheless, one of the other reasons for having this interest. Here are examples of these. Here's Matilda, which actually is a real lightweight, 1.3 grams per cc. It's got a gigantic craters here. I mean, goodness gracious, this crater is almost the size of the object. This thing has probably been shattered throughout and reassembled, but it's old enough that it's now covered with regolith over the rock pile, or maybe it's just got huge cavities from the reassembly. This is a picture of 25143 Itokawa. It's kind of on the line, borderline here. It's got a bunch of rocks all over it, but not a lot of craters. It's probably a, probably a solid body with a bunch of giganto boulders on this. 
So where do the asteroids come from? Well, the silicate and iron-rich meteors were probably fragments of the bigger differentiated bodies. As I mentioned before, their parents were hot and differentiated, enough to differentiate them into silicate mantles and iron cores. A big collision comes by, shatters the object, peels the mantle off, reveals the iron core, and then subsequent collisions take apart both the big mantle pieces and the iron pieces, and I end up with some meteors that are nearly pure silicates, some, I mean, some meteors, some asteroids are nearly pure silicates, some asteroids are nearly pure iron. The carbonaceous asteroids, as I said before, as again as a review, are probably much more primordial material. They're much older, more ancient. They contain the carbon, they haven't been differentiated, they haven't been melted, and they still retain a lot of their structure. Well, this brings us now to the subject of meteorites. Meteorites are chunks of rock and iron smaller than the asteroids that orbit the sun. They're the small object tail of the asteroids. They range in size from grains of sand up to about 100 meters across. So 100 meters means you get something about the size of the stadium in round numbers. A meteor, right, a meteoroid is what you call it when it's still orbiting the sun. So when you get a small chunk of rock, 100 meters or smaller, still out orbiting the sun, not doing, not bothering anybody, is called a meteoroid. Once, however, it strikes the Earth's atmosphere, or the atmosphere of any planet, it suddenly becomes a streak of light where friction heating, as this object smashes through the atmosphere, causes it to suddenly glow white hot and leaves a streak of garbage out behind it. We call that a meteor. Drop the, drop the oid part. Most of the meteors that we see in the Earth's atmosphere are actually tiny grains of rock, but occasionally they're much bigger chunks. Some of them are big enough to bounce to the Earth. Others are big enough to actually tear a gigantic hole in the crust. So they range in size. A 100-meter um, meteorite would, would, would make a pretty good-sized hole in the ground. You need, however, kilometer-sized stuff to make sort of big continent-busting kinds of things. Finally, if the me most meteors, however, are tiny grains, they just burn up in the atmosphere. They don't even make it to, to the lower atmosphere. They just pff, vaporize and they're gone. History. Occasionally, a small bit of that evaporated bit makes it to the ground intact as a chunk of rock you could pick up, and that's called a meteorite. So oid is when it's in orbit, meteor is when it's streaking through the atmosphere, and meteorite is when it hits the ground and becomes a rock you can pick up. So here are examples of meteors. Meteors often come out of the tails of comets as grains of bits. And you can see like the Leonid meteor shower, which normally occurs this time of year, unfortunately occurred behind immense cloud decks here this year. Occasionally, they do hit the ground. This is the Peekskill meteor in 1992. Um, spectacular fireball, which was visible from Pennsylvania and upstate New York. And in Peekskill, New York, it whacked this poor person's car. So he's got to find another ride, but you got for free a gigantic stony iron meteor about 12 kilometers in size. That's like getting whacked by a celestial bowling ball. The types of meteors? You get stony meteors, about 92% of them are stony. They're actually silicate bearing. They're probably fragments of S-type asteroids, differentiated silicaceous asteroids. The iron meteorites are fairly rare. They're about 6%. Iron is much less abundant than silicon, which is one of the reasons. These are going to be primarily nearly pure iron chunks. They're hugely dense. These are probably fragments of a shattered M-type asteroid. So these two types of, of meteors are probably pieces of ancient differentiated objects. The carbonaceous chondrites, this nasty black-looking thing which almost looks like a chunk of asphalt, 
is in fact a carbon-rich meteor with very, very complex carbon compounds inside of it, and these are thought to be fragments of the C-type asteroids. These are the carbonaceous early primordial stuff left over from the beginnings of the solar system. Carbonaceous chondrites are much rarer, even though the parent bodies are more common, because it's hard for those chunks to get down into Earth orbit. The origins, well, some of these things have been traced back to entry in the atmosphere. You can actually trace their orbit back. Some of them appear to actually originate from the main belt, so it's a way of getting a rock from the main belt without the trouble and expense of traveling there. You just wait for one to nearly hit you. You then make those out of meteor showers, ones like Leonid's and that. Those are tiny grains of sand. Those probably come off of comets, as we'll see on Wednesday. We'll talk about where comets come from. They carry little bits of grain with them. And very, very rare meteors have been found that have actually been knocked off of by impacts of the Moon or Mars. We've actually identified rocks which are chemically identical to moon rocks and which have chemical affinities with Mars rocks, and so very plausibly they were knocked off of those bodies by asteroid hits and then impact on the Earth. They're also among the oldest rocks in the solar system. The oldest of these things have ages about 4.6 plus or minus 0.01 billion years. And to give you an idea of what one of these things looks like, this is a, an iron meteor that the Ohio State University Department owns. It, uh, you notice I've got to use a hand truck to carry it around. It's a real heavy sucker. Um, it's made of nearly pure iron, so this was once the core of an undifferentiated object that was once orbiting in the asteroid belt. So if you want to see what, it, what a 4.4-ish billion-year-old rock looks like, here's an example. I'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>